Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Sean T. Smith. Sean is a clinical psychologist and an author of many books, including his bestseller, The Tactical Guide to Women. During our conversation, Sean talks about modern dating, the relationship issues with which his male and female clients are struggling, dating apps, how evolutionary psychology has influenced him, and the red pill community. More expansively, he talks about how the tactical guide came to be, what men can do to properly vet women for long-term relationships, and the importance of time in making life-changing decisions. This episode is primarily for men. I have found Sean to be a candid, sane, and even-handed thinker in the online world of mating and dating. Sean is a fair-minded and strong voice for men, and I would encourage any young man, either looking to make wise life choices or suffering due to indifference, to consult his work. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sean T. Smith. Sean Smith, it's an honor to do this. I have, um, I've really liked your work for a number of years, and um, I'm, I feel privileged that you would take the time to do this. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. You got it. You know, I know probably most people who are familiar with your work know about you from your kind of underground bestseller, The Tactical Guide to Women. And I thought it might be helpful for people or interesting for people who are listening to this to learn about the story of how you made that book in the first place. I know you're a clinician. Um, what? Wh- how do you make sense of w- how you wrote that book, why it was important to you to produce it in the first place? Well, I like that term underground bestseller. I think I'm going to start referring to it that way <laughs> because it kind of is turning into that. It's it, And it's really nice. Um, and certainly gratifying. But the way I came to write it is I'm a clinical psychologist and I've been in private practice for about 16 years. And when I started out, I was working with partly with couples and largely with anxiety disorders. And when when I say I work with anxiety disorders, that doesn't really mean anything because anxiety disorders bring everything in the door. Mm. And a, a lot of relationship conversations came up during during those discussions. And I worked with a lot of men because I'm a, I'm a guy in my field and we're, we're kind of rare. So at some point, during these conversations about relationships and guys having trouble with relationships, I started asking them who taught them how to choose relationships, who taught them how to vet women and who taught them what makes for a good relationship and a bad relationship. And almost universally, the answer was no one, no one taught them how to do this. And so then I spent the next decade or so looking at what is it that, that we're not telling each other as guys, what makes a relationship work? What makes frankly, what makes a woman minimally competent to participate in a relationship? What makes you minimally competent to participate in a relationship? And and that led to the tactical guide to women. Hmm. When you started writing it, what was it really to kind of fill a void that you felt like wasn't there? You know, I've been watching your interviews for the last few days, and I think I, I had heard you comment on this, that arguably, I think a lot of people would agree that, you know, vetting for a long-term relationship is the most important decision you're ever going to make. And there isn't a lot of material. We're certainly not, I wasn't taught you know, anything about that growing up. 
Did you kind of feel like there was a void in the market and in the culture in general for how to think about this strategically? Yeah. And I didn't think so much about the marketplace in the beginning. I've, I've thought more about the marketplace since I wrote the book, but certainly a gap in the culture. I think that women, and I don't really have anything to base this on, but I think women are a little better at talking to each other about choosing their relationships. And I think we as men, we have kind of an oblique way of talking about it, but we're, we're not really very good at it. And we don't tend to pass the knowledge on. And so the tactical guide to women started out as, what do I wish someone had told me when I was coming mm. up? Yeah. For people that don't have, you know, haven't consulted your book or haven't given a whole lot of time to consider this, what what is the kind of default mentality that you come across or have come across in your, your 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 private practice about men in general is it literally that they've given it really almost no thought at all or what what is the typical kind of default man who comes in and sees you i think men actually think about it quite a bit but there's there's not much guidance and we sort of want to a lot of guys want to figure it out on their own so every guy out there not every guy you know what i mean i'm i'm speaking in in um exaggerated terms. Every guy out there is reinventing the wheel in terms of mm. picking a woman. And we do think about it, but our criteria as men tends to be a little bit lower than women's. And this has been documented that that men are quicker to get possessive and say, I love you than women mm. are. We're quicker to really want to latch on to a woman and get hold of her. And then we kind of switch. Then women, you know, once we're attached and, and they've decided they want to be attached, then women want to speed things up. But in the beginning, it's us that is, is pretty non, not as selective as we should be. And um, so guys are out there reinventing the wheel. And a lot of guys, you know, if they've never really had troubled relationships with women, they don't look for very much. It's pretty much, does she talk to me? Can I tolerate her quirks? And how's the sex? That's kind of what a lot of guys boil down to. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to get into the book and kind of the major themes that you you touch on in the book. And you know, one of the the words you've already used is is vetting, vetting properly and giving, you know, relationships the time and the space. If you're, you know, talking to a young man or someone who is completely, you know, in your assessment, um a, a bit uneducated on how to think about what might be logical in terms of how they're going about vetting for a relationship. What are the keys? What are the big points that you would kind of point him to? It's an interesting question because as a clinician, I'm never really giving advice, very rarely. Um, there, there are times to give advice, but as a psychologist, that's not really the role. Usually what I'm doing, when and guys will come to me and I become sort of the specialist in, in this tiny little niche of how does a guy pick a woman? And so that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of what, what a lot of my caseload is these days. And guys will come to me and usually they're asking the right question, which is what are my relationship patterns and where are they taking me? And that's really the question is it's, it's different for every guy. I don't know that I have packaged advice. Well, I guess I do. I wrote a book. It's sort of packaged advice, <laughs> but for every individual guy, is, there's this question of what did you learn about relationships? What have you started doing in relationships? And if you keep following this path, where is it going to take you? Hmm. Yeah. One of the themes that I love that I know you've spoken about in you know interviews and also in presentations is, is the aspect of time. You just mentioned this, that a lot of men on average seem to be much quicker at actually moving things forward and, and saying that they love their girlfriend and trying to make something exclusive out of the relationship. Talk about time. I, I, you, you've also spoken a lot about brain chemistry early on in a relationship during the honeymoon phase and 
the importance of giving space and giving time to proper vetting. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, vetting vetting um, a relationship takes time. And the way I think about it is... We, there's this period where we are in the infatuation phase, you know, we, and when we're in the infatuation phase, this has been studied that our brain chemistry deviates from baseline. And this has been measured very indirectly and kind of sloppily through serotonin signatures and, and cerebral spinal fluid. And that's the most recent stuff I'm, I'm aware of in terms of measuring what it is exactly that happens to us. The point is that we are not seeing the world the way we normally do. We're not seeing ourselves and we're certainly not as men, we're not seeing her the way we mm. might normally see her. And so this period seems to last anywhere between six to 18 months or less or more. But the way, I, a, a pretty reliable way to know that you're coming out of that honeymoon phase or that infatuation phase is that the other person starts to become a little more three-dimensional to you so that you're not idealizing them anymore. And all the little things that were so quirky and lovable last months, now they're starting to get a little bit on your nerves. That's when you you know that you're starting to see them as a three-dimensional person and maybe your brain is starting to return to baseline. So my thought, just as just picking a number, is that once you exit that uh that infatuation phase, then you give it another year, each of you, you know, the man and the woman, and mm -hmm. you give each other another year because now you're starting to see each other clearly. And the thing to avoid, and this, this comes out of research from University of Denver, where I live, is um, carelessly shacking up and, and sliding into relationships. And um, you know, I give quite a few references in, in the book by Scott Stanley and some other researchers that talk about the fact that if you start sliding into a relationship when you're in this infatuation phase, and that means getting a, an apartment together, getting a dog together, uh, you know, sharing a car payment, paying each other's bills, that sort of stuff, you, you then the relationship gets its hooks into you. And if you start to realize that the relationship isn't really working very well, it's hard to extricate yourself from it. And so avoiding those sort of entanglements when you're in the infatuation stage, then creates options for each of you to vet each other carefully and properly when you're seeing each other more clearly versus having the hooks into you. And then you sort of go to the next stage because you're already on this path and the outcomes tend to be pretty bad. If you're, if you're shacking up, for example, because it just makes sense. Now, if you're living together as part of a plan, you know that you're going to get married, you're going to build a family, whatever it is you two have decided to do, and living together is part of that plan, then that doesn't seem to affect the outcomes negatively. But if it's living together and building these entanglements, just because it's convenient, certainly the outcomes are, are um, not as good as they are otherwise. Yeah. I, I think a lot of guys who are familiar with your work probably have come to it through a decent amount of failure in their own personal life that they they have made some pretty glaring mistakes early on, maybe some of the ones that that you just mentioned and are um, learning through pain that you know there there is a, a perhaps a better way to go about um, navigating these waters. And you know i'm I'm wondering for you if you know if you have thought a decent amount about what to be looking for as both red and green flags sort of early on that um, you think are maybe are good touchstones or rules of thumb for for men in the early stage of of dating, especially to to just sort of keep in mind and looking out for 
both the good and the bad, both great people and people who might be suffering from, you know, some psychological distress or illnesses even. Yeah. And I, I tend to think more in terms of green flags than red flags, although red flags are important, but you know, you can come up with a list of a hundred red flags that you want to avoid in other people and someone will come out of left field with number 101 and surprise yeah. you. So that's the, that's the inherent problem with a list of red flags is that it's, it, it doesn't catch all the, there's, there's no way to catch all the red flags, but if you know what you're looking for, it's sort of like going to the, to the shooting range, you know, there's at the shooting range, everything is off limits. You're not supposed to shoot the lights or the cash register or the chairs. You're supposed to shoot the target, but you have to know how to shoot the target. And it's not enough to know all the things that you're not supposed to shoot. That's not mm. how you hit the target. And so mm. that's really what I focus on. And the tactical guide is is a really basic framework for, okay, here, here are some qualities that make somebody ready for a relationship. That doesn't mean they're right for you, but it mm. means that they got the bare minimums in, in order. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that's where I sort of take the book is more green flags. Mm. And what are those? What are the the big ones that still resonate with you that you think are you know, kind of like you said, kind of a maybe a minimal minimum viable threshold. But uh, what are the big ones that come to mind? Well, the three that I talk about in the book are clarity, emotional maturity, and stability. So, clarity being the ability to communicate and work through problems. And I talk about specific things that that you should look for, like the ability to take responsibility, the ability to um particularly with women, because women can be very um, they can be very self sacrificing, and that can feel really great to a guy in the beginning to have somebody who's very accommodating, but that can turn into resentment. And that's a pattern I've seen in my, in my practice over and over where a guy will think that he's has a very nice accommodating woman because she never speaks up. She never complains. And then one day she's just resentful as hell. And there's no going back because all those years, she never spoke up for what she wanted. And he was, you know, most of these guys in retrospect, they, they kind of knew that something was going on, but they didn't take the initiative to find out what was, if something was bothering her. So hmm. that, that sort of communications, you know, those sort of communications abilities, I lump those under um, clarity. Um, emotional maturity is kind of what it sounds like. It's the ability to regulate her own emotions so that you're not in the position of regulating her emotions for her or vice versa. You're not using her to, to do that. And, and somebody who can really bounce back from bad days, which doesn't mean that she doesn't vent, but it means that she knows how to solve problems. She knows what's going on with herself and she knows how to to navigate in the world. And then emotional or um, stability is really about mental health, the way I frame it in the book. And I talk, I, I do a little basic rundown of things to to be aware of in mental health and depression, anxiety, personality disorders. But my basic stance on that is that I don't expect somebody to never have had a problem. I don't expect somebody to have a perfect life and, and a perfect mentality about everything and, and never to have encountered any, any emotional problems or anxieties. The question is really, how does she deal with it? So if she's had some struggles, that's actually probably good because someone who's never had any struggles is, is an untested quantity. Mm. Um, but if she's had some qualities or if she's had some, some, uh, travails and some some hardships has she faced them has she put her arms around it and and solved the problems hmm. and so that's a real basic framework for someone who's probably has the bare minimum requirements to participate and then you get into things like shared values which is uh, you know she may be the most wonderful person in the world but if the values collide it's it's not going to be a great relationship yeah i i i have worried in kind of the world that your book is in and some of the, you know, sort of more pu public thinkers in this space that 
there isn't, like you said, no one has had a perfect life. No one has had um, you know, a life free of difficulties or doesn't have bad days from time to time. And knowing the difference between, you know, granting someone the fact that they're a human being and they're, they're going to have some difficult times and the fact that you, know, you might be treading into a territory of something really to look out for, whether that's a severe mental illness or some sort of instability, I think is a, is a key point. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about some of the more intense personality disorders or you know aspects of dating that can really begin to dominate a guy's life if they don't understand that you know, there 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 are people out in the world who are rather troubled and i know just in the little i, I understand about borderline personality cases that can often feel amazing to men if they come mm -hmm. in contact with someone who basically views them as a as a god uh, or at least is extremely doting on them and so i wonder if we could if you're open to it kind of defining what that specific um disorder is and and some of the things that men might you know be be wise to look out for in filtering for that yeah certainly and that's an interesting disorder it hasn't it it has an interesting history is what i meant to say it goes back to the the label borderline goes back to the old psychoanalytic thinkers where they they would look at the way a person functions, their their basic personality structure, whether it was narcissistic personality structure or uh, a dependent personality structure that, or whatever it was that someone could be on the neurotic end of functioning, which is basically healthy. So a person could be have a predominantly paranoid structure, for, for example, but that can operate in a healthy way. And then at the other extreme would be the um so you have neurotic and then you have psychotic at the other extreme where that paranoia is functioning in a very maladaptive way and it's really hurting the person possibly hurting people around them and then in the middle you have borderline where it's kind of hard this range where it's kind of hard to say whether it's functioning well or functioning poorly so in terms of the label that's where the label came from and the way the label has evolved through the diagnostic and statistical manual is it has turned into a cartoonish description of somebody who uh, really lacks emotional control and lacks uh, relationship stability, lacks the ability to, to um, manage themselves and manage their relationships and function in life and separate themselves from other people emotionally. So mm -hmm. you can, you know, you might be having a bad day, but I don't naturally absorb it. And and also splitting has gotten thrown in there where the person lacks the ability that that most children learn at a certain point to be able to say, I'm angry at you and I love you. And instead in this sort of cartoonish description of borderline personality disorders, it's I, I'm angry at you, therefore I hate you because there's, there's no ability to see somebody as a mixed bag. So it is a cartoonish description of an ex an extreme personality type, but it still is a, a legitimate personality style where you have somebody who uh, doesn't regulate themselves, doesn't have a lot of skills for regulating themselves. And it certainly is a style where it starts out, it starts out with somebody idealizing the other person. And that's actually, you know, on the topic of red flags, that's a red flag is being idealized by somebody. And that's a little bit different. It's kind of hard to tell the difference between being idealized and being smitten. Mm. But um, 
being idealized. God, how would I define that? I guess it's it's believing that you can do no wrong, believing that you are the the savior of my life. Like my life is is circling the drain, and then you came along, and suddenly everything everything makes sense, and suddenly my life makes sense. You know, that's being idealized, and that's a bad position to be in mm-hmm. because there's only one direction to go and it's down. And when that person who's idealizing you comes up against the reality of you, that you are not their savior, that their life is is not changed because they encounter, they're going to be pretty irate and, and furious. And so if there's one thing I think to take from the the borderline diagnosis, which anybody can look up online, it's, it's that, it's that, it's that um, being idealized. And then also this, the um, splitting, that lack of ability to say, you know what, I am, I'm angry at you right now, but I'm still connected to you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You know, I think um, I, I have heard you talk about the fact that, it, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but that you, you have a, a real interest in evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. And I've had multiple professors and writers who specialize in EvPsych to, on the show to talk about the subjects. And I, I I thought this is a very basic question, but in your understanding of male-female dynamics, what do you view as the key components of a of men that women are typically, you know, really looking for? And maybe contrast that with some of the more Disney-esque narratives that are often um a big part of most people's upbringing, certainly my upbringing, how how you think about that in general. So how do women Sorry, say say the first part of that again for me. Just in general, what the big pieces are that women typically are are looking for, what they're attracted okay. in in men in general, and contrasting that if if you think it's appropriate sure. to do that to, with what you know culturally this sort of common narrative is about that in in general. Yeah, there's a couple of different cultural narratives, and um, yeah, and, and I am a fan of evolutionary psychology, and you had one of my intellectual heroes on recently, Roy Baumeister. I think he's sure. the man's just a genius. Um, and I enjoyed that interview, certainly. Um, there's a couple narratives. One is that women are you know, what is one? I guess one is the Disney uh, the Disney narrative that women are looking for the the Prince Charming. And I don't know that that's so popular these days. I think if there's a if there's a more common uh, cultural narrative these days, it might be a little more cynical, and it might be sort of that that red pill view that women, just they're not interested in your struggles. They just hang out at the the finish line and they bang the winners. You know that's one of the one of the uh, tropes that circles around in, in the red pill community, and it's made against way out into the to larger larger society that women just don't care. They're just looking for the winner. And I think what evolutionary psychology says makes a lot of sense to me. And if it, it you know, and I'm I'm a clinician, so I'm not I'm fairly well read, but I'm no expert. Um, mm. You know, I'm no Roy Baumeister or Steve Stewart Williams or anyone like that. So the way I boil it down is that evolutionary psychology says that women select for traits. They don't, they don't, they clearly don't hang out at the finish line and just bang the winners because if that were the case, then no 25-year-old man who has yet to achieve anything would would have a chance with any woman. Women would just be um hooking up with 50-year-old dudes who've who've already had their careers. Mm-hmm. So it's clearly not the case. And what women are looking for, according to evolutionary psychology, to oversimplify it is a willingness to invest and an ability to provide. And so there, I think women are evolutionary psychology says that women are very adept at knowing noticing the traits in men that lead to an ability to, to 
both um, provide and to stick around. And that's really what a, you know, probably a healthy, normal woman, whatever that is, that's somebody who who hasn't been mistreated. Well, what am I saying? I don't know what I'm saying, but most women are have evolved, have these evolved adaptations that they're looking for willingness and ability in men. Mm-hmm. And those involve traits like the ability to be socially connected and to have a sense of humor and to um to solve problems. And uh, you know, certainly my wife did not select for um outcomes. She selected for traits and yeah, she, she did okay because I've done okay, but <laughs> she wasn't looking at my bank account when she picked me. Hmm. Yeah, I, that's that's a very good point. Um, you know, you you mentioned Roy Baumeister, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what what else you've gleaned from the evolutionary psychology literature, or what what in general you think about. You know, EBPSYC is really interesting or important to you in your own kind of worldview. It explains a lot about why we do things the way we we do them, and it gets it gets criticized as having just so explanations. But some of these theories and, and hypotheses have been really pretty well tested and, and examined, and it's not just so explanations. And evolutionary psychology is a useful framework, and that's really what draws me to it. Is it, it is a useful framework in understanding why the genders do what they do, and um, it's it's a better framework than anything else I've I've come across. Yeah, I feel that I feel the same way. Um, you know, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times that you're you know you're a clinician. You, your boots are on the ground. You're talking with people in confidence about their their actual lives, their real problems that they're going through. And you know, I I wanted again. This is a fairly simple question to ask you. In general, what sort of themes your coming across in your your time with your patients of uh and maybe we can make it specific to relationships but what are the complaints and issues you you tend to be see, uh, seeing in general with men and women who come to see you one of the things i've really been struggling with lately is the change in the the landscape since tinder and apps came along because that's a huge issue a lot of guys come in and they complain about the treatment they get on Tinder and Bumble and, and some of these apps. And I'm really torn on on what I think about that because on the one hand, I've been married 24 years. So I don't have that firsthand experience of what it's like out there on the in the dating market. On the other hand, our species is hundreds of thousands of years old and we didn't just change in the last two years. You know, we we did not do a 180 and go in a completely different direction such that Every every woman now is on um, OnlyFans and got a Tinder account. And she's just constantly swiping left, and I know that that happens and that's out there. But at the same time, at the same time that I know guys who are really struggling with this new landscape, I also know a lot of guys who are doing just fine, and they're not participating in that landscape. They're still doing what we've always done, which is building interpersonal networks and meeting other people, including women, but also business associates and friends and women just through interpersonal networks. And sometimes that takes place on social media through Facebook and Twitter, where people meet them, people meet each other that way. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would consider that an, in an interpersonal network, whereas yeah, you you can meet somebody on Tinder or, and that's, that's, I would not consider that, um, meeting them through an interpersonal network. But if you meet someone on Twitter and you hit it off, that's kind of like meeting somebody at work or at a party or something. So I'm 
The things that people are struggling with right now, it's the change in landscape with the apps. And it's just a hard thing to make sense of right now because I'm hearing very different experiences of the world out there. Hmm. And the men who are making these complaints specifically to their experiences on the apps, is it that they're being treated poorly or it's just pure indifference that there is no there's no traction. They're not getting any, you know, um, any interesting options on there for, for most of the guys that you speak with. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I said they're being treated poorly and and you're exactly right. It's, it's indifference. It's mm. not being, some of them would be frankly be happy to be treated poorly because at least it's some interaction <laughs> and they might have a chance, you know, at least there's, if the door is open, maybe they can make something happen. Hmm. I was, I don't know if you've heard of this book, but I, I was persuaded by a book uh, called Dateonomics, which I don't know if you've heard of that or know, you know, its general principles, but I, I had the author on the show about a year ago. And, you know, one of his general points in the book is that, and I know you live in Denver and one of the nicknames for Denver is Menver, um, that just in terms of the proportions, Den- you know, the Denver area is a great place to date if you're a woman. Um, and conversely, you know, there are other cities in the world and in the country like New York, where the, uh, and this is for, you know, uh, heterosexual relationships, it's much more favorable for men. Um, I'm just curious if you've given any thought to that as well for your patients, depending upon where they are in terms of how they're, they're doing on there. Only in the sense that it's really interesting how different places have different personalities. Mm. Um, spoke to somebody recently who, uh, working through a matchmaking service and, meeting women in one city for a few years and then meeting women from a different city through this matchmaking service, same service, same matchmaker, same people, but different cities and having, you know, noticing almost that the the women from one place are completely different. They're almost a different species from the women from another place. And I just find that really intriguing. And it's kind of, it makes sense intuitively. You know, I live close to Boulder, Colorado, which a, which is a very, politically progressive, not just left. They're they're far left. And yeah. the women there tend to be pretty far left. And on the other hand, I have relatives in Kansas and I spend some time in Kansas. It's politically more conservative. And so the women tend to be more conservative and they're they're very different personalities just in aggregate. It's kind of interesting. Hmm. The men that you're you're talking about that are having a hard time, you know, on on apps or in life in general, trying to meet women and I'm sure they, their ages range, but, and again, I, I think you mentioned this earlier, you're not often in the advice giving uh, business, but in general, what what would be, if they asked you for it, the guidance or the suggestions that that you might provide to them? And I, I know just from, you know, getting more familiar with your your work, you know, recently that it's it's, it's often particularly difficult for men who are in their 20s, who have not really established themselves to attract any interest. So I, I would be curious to get your thoughts on what what advice you might give if, if those guys asked you for it. Yeah. And I think that a lot of guys now, probably like a lot of guys throughout history, think that this is the worst time ever to meet a woman. Yeah. And they think because of Tinder and and those apps that it is suddenly much, much harder for guys to meet women if you're in your 20s. And I would suggest that it's a little bit harder because of Tinder and so forth. But men have never had it easy trying to meet women. And most men in history have never procreated. Um, you know, So it, we've never had an easy time in our 20s meeting with women. And that's meeting women. So that's where 
I think a young guy today would turn to the same recipe that a, a young guy from my day or a hundred years ago would turn to, which is have a personality, have a purpose, have something that you're doing in life, be an interesting guy. And women appear, you know, and this is not just an old married guy saying this. I have clients who who are noticing this, that when I won't get too much into to that because it's, it's getting too much into the weeds, but when a guy decides that he's going to stop chasing women and he decides that he's going to do some interesting things in life and suddenly he starts getting more options. Yeah. You, you know, flipping that around and I, I don't know what percentage of your clients are, are women, but, um, if you do still, you know, see women who, who come mm-hmm. to speak to you about these subjects, what are they saying? What, what are the the primary complaints or difficulties that you see in, in their experiences? The complaints I hear from women are the same complaints that women have always had about men, which is that men are cads and men will use them. And men, you know, men are just, they want one thing and it's disgusting or whatever that mean is. Um, the same old complaints as always. Hmm. And then we and, get to look at, okay, well, which, which men are we talking about here? And are there, are there some men maybe that you're, you're excluding it? Maybe we could bring into your circle. Do they also seem to complain about the indifference? Is that a component that you've you've noticed or is that not so much the case? Yeah, I've certainly heard women complain about indifference on the apps. And as I'm thinking back over, you know, several women that I've, I've heard talk about this, the indifference doesn't so much come before. The indifference comes after where you have these are we allowed to use the language here? Yeah, for sure. You have you have these fuckboys that are on Tinder and they go out and they get laid as much as they can and they're indifferent after the fact. You know, they they're getting dressed and they're they're opening up Tinder again for the next date. That's mm-hmm. the indifference that that women experience and that's the same indifference that women throughout the ages have experienced if they're not careful. Yeah. A I don't know what you think about this idea, but you know, something that I forget where I heard this initially, but that the argument was being made that by opening up the you know sexual marketplace with these apps that the effect that it is having is something akin to like a classical pareto principle or an 80-20 rule where you know you you have something like 80% of the women trying to get the attention of 20% of the men and then you have 80% of the men essentially getting no attention whatsoever and so it's sort of inverting you know, what has been, at least in recent Western history, the monogamy um, cultural sort of touchstone and North Star for the way people are oriented. I I just wanted to bring that up and get your thoughts on that. If you're persuaded by what might be happening here with sort of these radical changes in the way that courtship is occurring and access has been radically opened up for people to, you know, collide and meet that really wouldn't have been possible even, you know, 15 years ago. I'll give you my thoughts and I want to hear your thoughts because you've talked to a lot of people about this. My thoughts are that there are basically two economies going on right now, but there have always been two economies going on. There's the economy of Tinder, which has always been there, but it hasn't been quite so easy. And then there's the economy of not Tinder, which has also always been there. Mm. And so a person can really choose to participate in the Tinder economy or choose to not participate in the Tinder economy and build more real world networks. And I know there are probably a lot of guys saying, well, that that's easy for you to say, you don't know what it's like because you're not 20 years old in 2023. No, but I was 20 years old a while back and it was 
it was pretty hard back then too. You know, it was not easy. So I have a sense of what the struggle is. So I think that there's a, this is the part I'm curious what you think about this, but there's a tendency to think that Tinder reaches out and creates fuckboys, and it reaches out and it grabs women and it turns them into into hoes mm-hmm. and that tinder is having this effect and and my thought on that is well which which men and women are we talking about because the men and women that we're talking about that just you know they want to have gratuit they want to have um I can't think of the word. They want to have gratuitous sex with people. Nothing wrong with that. You know, I think consenting adults should be able to do what they want to do, but those people have always been there. And if Tinder wasn't available, they would still have that same predisposition. So when we're lamenting that Tinder is changing human nature, my question is, well, which people exactly are we talking about? Because Mm -hmm. it's not the women in my circle. It's not the men in my circle. You think, think of a hundred people that, you know, anybody out there can do this. Think of a hundred coworkers, a hundred cousins, you know, all the, all the men and women, you know, coworkers, cousins, friends, sisters, aunts, how is it breaking down? Is it breaking down so that two guys, you know, are banging eight women? Is that what's happening in your world? Probably not. And it just really, that doesn't really pass the smell test. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's complicated. And I I don't know that I, I have a, a firm conclusion on this, but I I I am I think somewhat persuaded by the the fact that um, we've just sort of entered a new reality where these technologies are having right. I mean, it, it, to some degree, it might be similar to the internet in general. When initially, when you begin to open up things like Facebook and and Google, that there's this high spiritedness of the fact that the end result will be democracy everywhere and increased civility and just a better world in general. And uh, I think what ends up happening is that human nature takes over throughout the years. And I don't, I really think that like the social network engineers and founders thought that they were producing something that would bring about a better world. And in some ways they have, but I don't think that they were clear about all of the negativity that would probably come about over the years with the polarization and just what happens to people when they can act pseudo anonymously on digital platforms and have essentially very little accountability for um you know the the way that they behave and i think something similar is probably happening uh in the dating world as well i mean I, i've always had the view that men will go where women are so if all the women are at bars, that's where men are going to go. I think there was sort of a tipping point in the last five or seven years when men understood that unlike at the, you know, sort of the onset of, of uh, you know, dating websites, when it was not really something that was acceptable for, mo- for most people socially, once a tipping point was reached where men understood like, no, there are a lot of women who are, who are on here, that's where guys will go. Um, to me, the interesting question is like, where does this go over the next 10 or 20 years? And, um, how does this affect the culture in general? Because it it does seem to me that guys that are, and you know, I want to get into this at some point during the conversation, but that can kind of attract women with being, what they tend to be looking for. You know, you talked about the traits that I think is correct that women filter for, but also have signals of 
status and resources and height, um, they're that's what they're getting a, a lot of interest. And then a lot of guys just are having a really hard time. Um, I don't know really where this ends. If there's a shift in just the mentality of men and women in terms of what they are going to be looking for long-term, but I think it has the potential to really change our civilization in, in general. I don't know if you concur with that or have other views. Yeah, it, it certainly has the ability to change. I mean, it, it is changing our, our, yeah. our species to some degree. Um, but the question is how much, and I guess what the question is, I don't disagree with what you said. And we know that the apps, they don't exist to help you build a relationship. They exist to have you continue to use the app. That's, mm. and that's what the algorithms, algorithms optimize for. And at the same time, I think that people who are interested in, in building relationships, they're still going to build relationships. We, we still are fundamentally the humans that we have been for the last 200,000 years. And I don't see the technology really changing that. Hmm. Yeah. But I don't know how it's going to shake out. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know either. And, um, you know, I, it, it's just interesting. So I'm in my late thirties now and I'm, I'm watching, you know, the, the, just the time horizon with what can happen with women who are approaching this age, who, um, don't yet know really where their lives are going in this direction. And it's, uh, it's difficult. I mean, I, I, I think you've spoken about this in other interviews as well of what can happen to women who begin to sort of at, in their mid thirties, begin to look for guys that they're, you know, they've sort of established themselves in their career. They're super educated. They're super successful in that domain and then begin to look for somebody to settle down with. And it it's often extremely, I think, challenging at that age to begin to try to, to navigate that and to uh, find a guy that's really meeting your criteria. If you are someone who is earning a lot of money and is very educated. And again, I think this is one of these second order consequences that I certainly didn't foresee coming. And I think, you know, in my experience with female friends, I, I don't know that they really saw this coming as as well. And, you know, we're kind of circling around, circling around the idea of, you know, hypergamy, which, uh, yeah, I would love to sort of get, get your thoughts on that idea too. But specific to women in that conundrum that they can often find themselves in, is that something that you've seen too in your, you know, your clinical work that, of women who have, are running into this reality, who are yeah. super smart, super attractive, but 35 and need to get moving quickly. We talked about this earlier when you were mentioning the fact that time is such an important filter and component for both men and women to learn if this is going to be a healthy long-term deal. And a lot of, I mean, uh, there are a lot of women that I think get to a certain age, they don't feel like they have that kind of time to, to give, to, to vet properly for themselves. And it just seems like um, a bit tragic in my experience. It's, it's very tragic. And as a clinician, I think about individuals, I'm not very good about talking about society and the population, but here's something that that I have noticed is that um, one of the messages of the current iteration of feminism is, well, I guess it's always been feminism, that you can do whatever you want if you're a little girl. And this is a message of, of Barbie. I took my wife and daughter to see Barbie mm. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And 
I have some mixed thoughts on that on that movie, but the message of that movie, at least one of them, is that you can do whatever you want if you're a little girl. You can be a surgeon, you can be an astronaut, you can you can do whatever you want, and that's true. But there are trade-offs, and this is the part that feminism never tells little girls that you're going to be 38 years old in the blink of an eye, and you see it. I see it all around me. I see women who get into their 30s, they've followed this message that they can be whatever they want, which I'm I'm all for it. You know, do what you want with your life, but nobody ever told them that they were going to be 38 years old someday. And that suddenly they're going to, you know, suddenly now they've got an impulse, a drive, a passion to have a family and it's painful for them. And this just breaks my heart. Um, you know, and it it's it's really a, a bill of goods that we sell our little our little girls when we don't tell them that you can be whatever you want. And you better make some choices. If you think you're going to want a family, you probably better get on that sooner than later. Because by the time you're 38, number or in your 30s, number one, the the clock is ticking. It's just not really in the cards for you beyond a certain point. And number two, all the guys that are family oriented, well, guess where they are? They're at home with their families. And you miss the boat. And this this is a tragic. And yeah. I hate to see women getting caught up in that. And what do you, what do you think, you know, you mentioned this, that you have a daughter and I think she's still not quite at that age. Maybe when, I mean, you obviously can correct me if I'm wrong about that, to have that kind of a conversation with her, but what do you think the proper messaging really is? Is it, is it what you just said, which is that Mm -hmm. you can be whatever you want, but you begin to think about this a little bit sooner perhaps than, you know, in my experience, this isn't really brought up in college as something that, you know, women who are still very young should maybe give some thought to. Yeah. No, the, she's, my daughter's 16 and I've had this conversation with her mm. just, just in those terms, you got to make choices. There's trade-off in life. And when, after we saw the Barbie movie, that was an opportunity for me to, to repeat that message. There's trade-offs in life. You better, you better think about what you're doing here because you can do whatever you want, but you can't do it all. Yeah. That movie has fascinated me just how much traction it's gotten, how big the audiences are. I was yeah. in New York in July and you were seeing people dressed up in pink all over the city. I haven't seen the film, but you know, you mentioned that you saw it with your wife and your daughter. What are your typical takeaways? I mean, you alluded to some of the general themes in the film, but what what do you make of the phenomenon and um the the messaging and any critiques you might have? Well, um on the plus side, it was fun to watch. It was a good movie. It wasn't another in my estimation, another boring superhero movie where nothing's really at stake because everybody's magic. And, you know, it was entertaining. It was fun. It was funny. There was, there was some dancing and some music and there was some good humor in it. So it was fun to watch. On the other hand, it was, I think a terrible message. The message that I took was that men and women can't really love each other. We can't really support each other, be on each other's side. We can't work with each other. At best, we can grudgingly coexist. And I think that was the message that I came away with. And I think it's a terrible message for little girls. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I, you mentioned this a couple of times during this conversation that, you know, you're, you're a married guy and that you've been married for 20 years. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and I wanted to give some, some breathing room and some space if you're comfortable to talk about, um, you know, and, and this can be from personal experience or just in, in general, some of the themes you've noticed in your clinical work about what makes for you know a healthy long-term relationship and and why it matters perhaps too um i know you have a lot of experience this with this in your own life but uh i'd love to give you a little bit of time to speak on that if you're you're okay with it 
Yeah. Well, let me, let me, um, I'll start with this because I've, I've spoken publicly a few times recently, and I think that I have mistakenly give the impression elsewhere that I'm pushing marriage and I'm not pushing marriage or long-term commitment on anybody. I'm not, I'm nobody's spiritual advisor. I, I don't care what consenting adults do with their lives. My only message to men in particular is, is if you want to build that shared enterprise with a woman, if you want to be married, if you want to have, then let's be smart about it and be choosier. Men need to be a lot choosier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my basic message. And um, so, what was what was the rest of that question? What makes for a good marriage? Just the key, you know, the key components. You you mentioned this earlier about you know some some aspects to look for if you're a guy and and women. But in terms of like actually living this reality for you know a couple decades now, uh, and also talking to people about their most intimate problems. What and you know, I think a lot of people can intuit some sort of obvious components to this, but especially if there's anything counterintuitive that you don't think is a well-known component to uh, a likely successful long-term relationship. I'd love to hear that as well. Well, I think people have pretty good instincts, all things being equal in choosing partners. Because the reason I say that is we tend to select people that are pretty close to us in terms of intelligence and pretty close to us in terms of intellect and pretty close to us in terms of um, attractive physical attractiveness and interests you know we tend to one of the one of the factors that that really seems to affect outcomes in marriage is would you rather stay home and Netflix and chill, or would you? Uh, that term's dated now. That was last year's <laughs> terms. But would you rather, you know, sit sit at home, or would you rather be out doing exciting things in the world? And people tend to choose people who want to do who match their energy level. So, all things being equal, we're pretty good at choosing uh, at, at choosing mates. Where we get screwed up is when we inherit bad relation bad inherit malfunctioning relationship patterns or when we develop them ourselves and we don't recognize that we are repeating a pattern that doesn't work very well and that's where um that's where i think it it really pays to have some insight and i guess that would be my advice is before you even think about getting into any kind of long-term relationship understand where it is that you come from relation relationally what did your parents teach you what did they not teach you what relationship pattern have you developed up to this point and where are you headed with it and, and is it really what you want is it working for you so that's really the question hmm. yeah uh, you know and i know that you've at least been on the periphery of and you used this phrase earlier in the conversation like the the online red pill community and hmm. I, I wanted to also get your thought i mean one of the things i've always liked about you is you've always seemed very sensible um, and non-ideological. And I think that there's such a hunger for that in the climate in the country right now, from my perspective. And I'd love to you know, just get your thoughts on the pros and cons of that, that community, that world. I know it's not an organized community, but in my mind, there's been an absolute explosion of very high quality work and conversations and interviews that both men and women can learn from about um, just being wiser and smarter about developing themselves and what maybe to look for in in the opposite sex. But the state of the, you know, for lack of a better phrase of the the red pill community, the pros and the cons, I wanted to give you some space to to speak to that. Uh, Because I know you've had at least some interaction with 
that world. And uh, I would love to get your opinion. Yeah, I, I would say that I've had more than some interaction. I've I've met the big figures in person, and and um, you know, they don't all love me because I, I question <laughs> some of their beliefs. And um, but the red pill community, I'm very happy it exists. And um, I think my profession, psychology, clinical psychology, is not happy that it exists to the extent that they're even aware of it. They're not happy that it exists. But I think that my profession is responsible almost for its existence because my profession has failed men so miserably in understanding women that men started having their own conversations. And men have always had their own conversation. You know, I grew up in a bar a long time ago, a truck stop in a bar. I spent my nights and weekends there. And I heard conversations among men trying to figure out women. So these conversations have always happened, but the internet came along and then men started having these conversations in a very large organized fashion. And there became this, this crowdsourced set of ideas about how women and relationship works, relationships work. And some of the ideas are goofy and and they'll get you in trouble. Some of them frankly make a lot of sense and they're the kind of ideas that people in my profession won't won't say out loud or aren't aware of, you know, just just the basic notion that women aren't perfect. That's a foreign concept in my profession because in my profession women are basically infallible. You can see that in the APA's American Psychological Associations, they wrote guidelines for working with boys and men in 2019, which got a lot of press, negative press, because it was so they were so out of touch with men. But then they also produced this um, set of guidelines for working with girls and women. That got a lot less press. But if you look at these two documents side by side, what you see, at least from the APA, which I think is a pretty representative, um, pretty representative of my people in my profession, is that men are the problem, women are infallible. And that's a pretty much a common sentiment in my profession. That is not the experience of your average guy who's having trouble with relationships, trying to figure out women. And that's where the red pill comes from. And what is it, you, know, you just alluded to this, that men are saying out loud now that wasn't necessarily available widely five or 10 years ago. What are you hearing that to you does make a lot of sense and that you think is worth, worth saying out loud? Yeah, there's a few concepts from from red pill dogma that really make a lot of sense for me. One is frame, and and, and frame is. I'm, I'm probably going to butcher this, and any red pill guys who are listening, if you would, might you know, they're all going to disagree with anything I say because they <laughs> they tend to be they're kind of disagreeable group, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I would say that to their face. I'm not saying anything here that I wouldn't say to any of the major figures face to face. Mm -hmm. So frame being the idea that. Um, a man has his world and a woman can enter his world or he can enter her world. And the, the red pill belief is that I think that relationships function more smoothly when a woman enters a man's frame than when a man enters a woman's frame. And my experience as a clinician of, with many years under my belt is that, yeah, that's kind of true. My profession would regard that as hate speech, but it's kind of true. So why can't we say it out loud? Hmm. Hmm. Anything else come to mind that, you know, again, these are probably on averages beliefs that or views that you have, but is there anything else that comes to mind that um, resonates that you also think is probably true? Well, hypergamy is the big word and it's the most commonly used word in the red pill community. So this is the idea that, um, how, how much time do I have? Because this, we, do you have a few more minutes? 
Definitely. Okay. So it's the idea that um, women date up across and up hierarchies. And even Jordan Peterson has said this. And this is something that my grandfather could have told you that <laughs> women want the best man they could get. They want the most connected, um, the most connected man they can get, the one who's going to be the most successful. That much is pretty much indisputable. But then the red pill kind of turns that into an entire framework that doesn't really hold water that is that ostensibly explains how women function in relationships and why they leave relationships. And it really doesn't hold water because we know why women leave relationships. There's good epidemiological data on why women leave relationships. And it you know, hypergamy is not high on the list. It certainly happens where a woman is trading up to a higher man, but it's you know, when women don't typically want to get connected and attached to a man just to cut him loose when a better option comes along. Um, so that's one that doesn't really resonate with me. And I'm trying to think of other major concepts within the red pill. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm coming up blank now just because I'm on the spot and it's, it's yeah. been a while since I really thought about. Well, I think, you know, to, to, to turn that around and, and you just, you know, alluded to, you know, probably one of those components uh, that you think is, is kind of off base you know, I, I think it's important to note that men are kind of looking for the same thing, right? They're also looking mm -hmm. for their best options. So this is not unique to women that that's sort of built into the human animal to try to find, you know, what you consider to be a, a really good deal, essentially a really good relationship. What else do you, have you heard that, you know, in the red pill world specifically that you think is off base or that, you know, you have a strong disagreement with the the general, you know, culture in that world or opinions in that world that that you think they're probably wrong about. Well, one thing that I'm I'm fairly certain that they, yeah, and I, I hate picking on because I think there's a lot that they they get right, and I'm just having a hard time drawing that right now. But if you give me time, I'll come up with it. But one of the things that I think they absolutely get wrong is they get demonstrably wrong is the idea of alpha fucks beta bucks, and this comes from the work of people like David Buss, who who came up with this hypothesis a while back. It was a dual mating hypothesis that said that there's an ovulatory shift in women, that when women are in one part of their cycle, they're looking for the alpha chad who has the best seed. And then when they're in another part of their cycle, they're looking for the, the beta guy who will just stick around and provide. And so the idea is that women have this, this dual path that they're, that they're trying to navigate. And there's, there's some truth to that. But the same people who came up with that hypothesis have since said, you know, it really doesn't hold water. We're not finding any real world effects here. And what we're noticing is that women are almost always selecting for someone who looks like they will be a good long-term match. Even when they're, even though we, we see when people have studied uh, differences in behavior, depending on where a woman is in her cycle, what what they have been able to quantify is very small changes, like the the change in her gait or maybe the change in, mm -hmm. in the way she puts on her makeup. Like we don't, there hasn't been any evidence that women go out and you know in a, in a frenzy of hormones and they get banged up by some banged by the or knocked up by somebody on the hockey team and then they go find a nice guy to settle down. There's just not a lot of data for that, which is not to say that some women don't do that, but um, and and the red pill guys will find a woman who does that and they will point at her and say, see, this is what, what women do. But um, there's just not much data for that. The data says that women are generally looking for a good long-term guy, no matter, no matter what their state of mind is. Yeah. I, I was, I wanted to ask you this as well, that, you know, the, who are the people that come to mind in, you know, in your mind that you regard 
you you have high regard for that you think are sensible and smart and objective and nonpartisan, who do you consult? Who would you point other people to or people who are listening to this and are you know are looking for accurate information, humane information um, for personal development, for growth and for accuracy? Anyone come to mind? I'd love to know that. Well, I, I said that um, Roy Baumeister is one of my intellectual heroes and and he is, but um, I, I try not to idolize anyone because mm-hmm. I think that the key is to read widely. Go read the red pill stuff, read, read all of it, decide what fits, and then go read evolutionary psychology, see what the red pill guys got right and what, what doesn't match up. And then go read John Gottman, which, you know, it's going to be somewhat helpful and it's going to be somewhat not helpful. You know, read widely and experiment and make your own decisions and learn how to, how to be a and responsible consumer of information. Yeah. Sean, I know we're slightly over, but I, I wanted to, you know, before kind of closing on a maybe final topic, just say thank you for for doing this and all the work that you've done and the public presentations. And uh, to me, one of the great things about being alive right now is the free and widely available high quality content and knowledge that is now available to people. And I'm certainly a huge nerd in that department. And I know you've you've done a lot of work in that department with your book and and with other presentations you've done. And I, I really appreciate you giving me the time to uh, to have this conversation. And and maybe if we could close on just why this information matters in the first place. I mean, to me, when I follow your work and you know read your your writing and watch your interviews, you, you start your book. You mentioned this earlier that you grew up in a bar that you witnessed men whose lives had been destroyed um, and that you remember seeing them drowning their sorrows in alcohol and um, really going through severe suffering. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the, the my reading of why I would bet this matters to you is that you think it can help people um, navigate the world in a more wise and honest and accurate way with increased integrity and probably increased personal development. Um, I want to maybe close on that to, to give you an opportunity to speak about why, why this stuff matters, why your, your work matters and the work in general that you've kind of devoted your life to. Well, first of all, yeah, it is an amazing time that you and I could just have this conversation and yeah, yeah it's, 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 yeah, that's a good thing. Um, the, the reason I hope my work matters. I, it's not for me to say how good or bad my work is. It's for the market to decide. But if you can avoid the biggest mistakes, you're you're winning by not losing. You know, you're you're giving yourself an edge over. You give yourself an edge if you can just avoid the big pitfalls. And this is one area where I, you know the red pill guys and I would absolutely agree that relationships are are very risky for men. They're risky for women too in a different way, but. A, a, the wrong relationship can castrate a guy. Essentially, it can castrate him financially. It can it can just ruin his life. Um, and so, being able to avoid some of the big errors is that's a big advantage. Yeah, I like that. Winning by default. Yeah, yeah. Sean, this was such a pleasure. And um, again, thanks so much for all the work that you do. I hope you keep it up. And uh, it's a real joy to do this. Well, thanks for having me on. This was a good time. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. 
If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.